Hello and welcome back to Spotlight on Women in Health Ventures, the podcast powered by Thea, a nonprofit dedicated to empowering women as entrepreneurs in healthcare. Thea Lyles Williams is founder and CEO of Lucas Pie Bio, the first large scale biotechnology company to be led by an African American woman. As a contract development manufacturing organization, or CDMO, Lucas Pie Bio currently offers a wide range of services to its clients, including proprietary cell line development, bioprocess development, consulting, and CGLP's small-scale bioprocessing, all in turn fast-tracking the clinical development of companies' biologics for regulatory approval, manufacturing the biologic below market price, and accelerating the drug products into the global commercial market for sale. It is one of seven biologic CDMOs located in the U.S. with capabilities to develop and manufacture gene and viral-based drug products. Tia also founded Heloplex, Lucas Pie Bio's sister company, which is a commercial co-working space for life science startups and virtual biotechs. Together with Lucas Pie Bio, Heloplex will continue to play a critical role in nurturing and developing life science entrepreneurs and companies from underserved groups and communities. In fact, Lucas Pie Bio is the first company in the biotech space to have more than 50% of the C-suite team seated by women and more than 85% seated by people of color. Thank you so much, Tia, for spending your Sunday morning with us. It's a pleasure to have you on our podcast and hear about your journey as an entrepreneur and building Lucas Pie Bio uh, among your other accomplishments. It'd be helpful to start from the beginning and understand what inspired you to, to start this organization? Thank you for having me on your podcast. I'm excited to be here. What got me started was I kind of hit a ceiling in my career. Um, was one of the reasons. Another reason was you didn't see many people, African-American or people of color, in the C-suite position actually making change at a company as far as biotech. So those are the two reasons. I knew that all the education that I had, all the experiences that I had, that I was never going to be paid my worth of giving the same opportunity to some of my predominantly white organizations. So this last job that I had at Jazz Pharmaceuticals, senior manager, the contract job, uh, they didn't want to renew the contract. And at the end of the contract told me that I was unqualified for the job I had already been doing for a year. So for me, it was kind of like the same hamster wheel. Every time I get to a new company, I do well. There's drama because I'm doing well. There's jealousy. And so automatically I'm put in a position where they're forcing me out or I got to leave. And so, and there was always another situation where in order to get into that company, the only way I was going to get in there was being on contract. So it was going to be a whole nother year without benefits, yada, yada, yada. So by that time I had already had my business plan written out for Lucas Pie Bio and how I wanted to work. And uh, when they didn't renew the contract, I just looked at it as a sign. It was time for me to take Lucas Pie Bio to the next level and to start working it full time. I'd like to take a, a few steps back and, and really focus on Lucas Pie Bio. Tell us about, um, you know, the problems that you're trying to solve and sort of the framework of the organization. Well, Lucas Pie Bio is a contract development manufacturing organization, so we don't do any R&D ourselves. Companies like Indigenous hire us to actually 
formulate the drug and actually manufacture it at large scale to support human clinical trials in a commercial market once approved. So for us, it really is being available to the little guys, some of the life science startups, explaining to them that process to get them to human clinical trials, work with them closely on a regulatory level, and then just being financially accessible. And so even with that, that was the whole purpose of my other company, Heloplex, mm-hmm. is this, yes. because when we go after these startups, uh, we quickly realized not only were they not financially prepared uh, for CDMO service, whether it was with me or whether it was with a larger competitor, uh, like a Catalan or Alonza, but they really didn't understand the process at all because they, they couldn't see anything past them working in a lab and discovering the actual asset. So that is the purpose of Heloplex is to kind of take a step back with these companies, get them prepared financially to handle uh, the financial responsibility of working with a CDMO and also being able to look from a quality and a regulatory perspective, looking at a potential CDMO partner and really being able to weigh the pros and cons and determining whether or not they're a good fit to be your CDMO partner. That's how you get into things such as, you know, for lack of better examples, Emerging Biosolutions, which is one of our direct competitors where, you know, they, yep, they had government contracts, their whole business is built off of government contracts. But even the federal government, it took them a while to see on their own that there were certain things in place preventing or now rolling out to when we really needed them to to deliver on what they say they can do as far as some of those quality and regulatory issues. And so for Johnson & Johnson, yeah, it hurt hurt them, but it hurt us as patients not having access to the vaccine. But when it comes to a little guy, it hurts their pockets deeply. If you go to phase one and can't get out of phase one, or you go to phase two, can't get out of phase two, or you're just coming out the gate in the commercial market, and Mm -hmm. now you're being knocked down because your CDMO partner doesn't have their, their shit together, for lack of a better word. So that is really the, the, the purpose and what we look at as far as Lucas Pie Bio, as well as Heloplex is really working out and, and bringing that little or that startup company along to get them where they need to be per whatever their preference of an exit is. It could be an early exit after animal studies. It could be an early exit after phase one. Or they may want to just take it all the way to market themselves if they didn't want to license it before that. So that's kind of how we see our view, and that's our primary target market, and that's why Indigenous was such a big deal. The sign with Lucas Pavio, as well as um, becoming an anchor tenant at, at Heloplex. And so, just for you guys, for you guys that don't know, uh, Heloplex is the first commercial life science co-working space with a built-in accelerator. And so, mm-hmm. what that means is that startups at the seed level are only have to be accepted into the accelerator, and we basically show them from taking their asset from our early stage wet lab, actually formulating it on site at Heloplex and then preparing them the next step um, to get that permission and take it to human clinical trials when it's time for them to seek out a CDMO partner. Naturally, Lucas Pabio is a sister company in Heliplex. We would like them to come there, um, but they don't have to. At least now they have the tools. If they choose to go with another CDMO partner, they know what to look for. So they're synergistic. So as an entrepreneur, if you have an asset that you want to explore further uh, through an incubator, you would go through Heliplex. But then at what point would you, as an entrepreneur with an asset, uh, go after a CDMO partnership? What are the sort of qualifying criteria to, to formally enter a partnership and be considered? Right. So once you've already manufactured material, uh, I mean, you've come up with a formulation recipe for the asset, you've actually manufactured material to be tested in animals in the toxicology study, then you fill out an IND. You fill out the application. It has to meet certain criteria, and that's where FDA or any other regulatory agency around the world gives you permission to start testing in human clinical trials. Once you receive that permission, now you can no longer manufacture at a Heliplex or anywhere else that is a non-CGMP 
manufacturing facility, you will have to seek someone like a Lucas Pabio with CGMP manufacturing capabilities to manufacture that drug for you. And the reason why it's super important and more important than what people think is that wherever you go to manufacture that drug in a human clinical trial, that's pretty much where you have to manufacture it for your commercial market. Now, that doesn't mean whoever you do it for phase one, you got to stick for phase two, you got to stick for phase three. But I will say whoever you deal with for phase three and whoever you put in that, that biological license application, the BLA, if you put that CDMO in your BLA, that's where it has to be manufactured. If you decide to switch manufacturers after the drug has been approved for a commercial market, you do have to file the amendment. And then whoever that new CDMO partner is, they have to go through the same audit that the previous one went through. And so any drug manufactured at that new partner will not be accepted to the market. You have to continue to manufacture at the old plant until you get permission to manufacture at the new plant or permission for drug coming out that plant to be released to the uh, commercial market or general public. This is not something that's cheap. The average cost of manufacturing a biologic, and I'm not talking about cell therapy. We'll get to that in a minute. It's a totally different ballgame. But the bulk of your biologic market is of recombinant proteins, enzymes, monoclonal antibodies, any other large molecule that is the bulk of our market. So the average price is around 2.5 million per a batch. And that's not even in its final form. That's what we call the active pharmaceutical agreement, which are called the small molecules, or what we call drug substance. Then you got to take in and do the final formulation fact. And those batches are a little bit cheaper. You know, they're not over in the millions. They're more like a, probably like a 750K, 800K per batch. And by that time, you don't need as many batches because now you're getting into dosing, right? So you may have, may have done six batches of drug substances and then they get combined down to three batches of final formulated drug that's ready to be, be put into uh, human beings, whether it's for testing or the commercial market. These are the things that you, you know, you got to consider when you're switching partners and when you fill out that BLA to make sure that you're sure. More importantly, your investors are not going to be happy if they dump millions and millions and millions. I think right now we had it at, what, $2.5 billion to get a drug uh, commercialized as far as a biologic. And it's probably about the same, if not a little higher now. So your investors are not going to be happy with you starting over that process. You have to be very sure of who you're working with if you're not going to manufacture it yourself. And then you may want to manufacture it at two different CDMOs, even at the start, so that when it does get approved, you got two CDMOs approved. Uh, you may continue to do it at the same time, or you may use one as a backup, but you know if you have to switch to that backup, it's already been approved for use in a commercial market. How do you make money as a CDMO? Do you take equity or do you charge, um, dependent on the company's asset or potential revenue? Oh no, CDMO is straight for-profit company. So that's why I gave you the cost of 2.5 million per batch. That's what okay, we charge so per that's batch. what you charge. That's what we charge, that's average. That's not what we charge, but that's average. I'm not gonna tell what we charge, but that's average in the market. That does not include raw materials and consumable goods in the process. That does not include uh, cost or what it, uh, personnel. So these, these, it stacks up. So for about a, uh, for phase one material, it's going to cost you around 20 to $25 million. And that's from mm -hmm. cell line development all the way up to probably three batches minimum for phase one clinical trials. And so the reason why you probably want three batches is two of those batches are probably going to be used for validation, trying to validate mm -hmm. the appropriate storage temper temperature of the doses long-term, trying to validate the storage temperature and the time for that product as an intermediate stage before getting into its final doses can stay at temperature is all these data points that we have to create because every time 
you test in human clinical trials and then you go back and fill out the next page of the application to get to phase two or phase three is all an approval process. So all this data has to be stacked up. So when you manufacture drug, not just manufacturing for it to be uh, tested in humans in each of those phases, you're also manufacturing to complete validation studies right. at different stages of that drug formulation process to make sure everything is within temp, within storage time, uh, within the appropriate container. The CDMO makes this money because we simply do work on contract. So Got we're it. not tied to whether or not the drug gets approved. We get yeah. paid no matter what because we're manufacturing that material on your behalf. I see. That makes sense. Um, and as far as sourcing scientists and, and assets, how does that work? Are you often approached given, I guess, the establishment that you've, you've created? Or is it more of, you know, drawing these companies in, communicating to academic institutions, scientists, et cetera? How do you source the science? It's a bit of a process. Um, a yeah. lot of our customers look through, I know it sounds funny, but a lot of them look through some of the biotech um, online newsletters to see who's doing the latest technical things, who has te technical capabilities. Uh, we're getting ready to ramp up that campaign ourselves through a strategic partnership uh, with Burt Markets Incorporated. And so they're the publishers of some of the major life science newsletters. So we're about to ramp up our marketing to attract more customers. The other way is biotech conferences. Uh, so mm -hmm. the JP Morgan Chase, the International Bio Conference, and there's tons more. I'm just naming two of the big ones. But going to those conferences are where we meet a lot of customers. So, you know, even though my name is out there, it's still a lot of work to get Lucas Bio's name out there as far as our technical capabilities. We appreciate the attention for me being a minority founder and for the makeup of our C-suite. Um, but now we're actively seeking publicity and marketing and advertising uh, opportunities to advertise mm -hmm. and market our actual technical capabilities. So we're not just seen as a minority-owned company, but we're also a minority-owned company that is capable, if not more than capable, of some of our direct and indirect competitors in the market as far as being a CDMO partner for biologics manufacturing. Tell us about your approach to differentiation when it comes to competitors. You alluded to a few uh, from our prior uh, discussion, but... How do you see Gizpi Bio as, as different and how do you communicate that to your clients and the public? We're different in a lot of ways. For one, uh, the majority of our documentation is electronic is in the and in the cloud. The majority of our direct and indirect competitors still use paper documentation. That's one of the things that got Emergent Biosolutions in the situation that they're in now. Um, but by being in the cloud and being more of a preventive system, that forces the operator, forces the associate to stop and look at what they're doing and not allowing them to go into the next step. That's what helps stand us, uh, help us stand out from the crowd. We're also developing some mobile applications for our customers. So one is called the Bioprocess Tracker. It allows customers to follow the manufacturing of their product at a high level, very similar to the Domino's Pizza Tracker. It gives them key analytics um, as far as like cell counts and uh, level of concentration of protein, um, all these different things that they need and uh, within the intermediate steps of getting that drug out the door. And then we have another mobile app that kind of follows behind it, but it gives us more control on the supply chain side, which is another reason Emergence Biosolutions got into a bit of trouble. But the biosupply tracker allows us and the customer to be able to look at things at a pretty detail. I'm not going to say high level, high level for the customer, but detail for us that work internally at LPV to figure out where exactly 
each of our components, such as raw materials or consumables, are coming from? Are they coming within the quality agreements that we've already had with those vendors that uh, supply our supply chain to support the mm -hmm. customer? So that if anything happens, let's say we receive a filter, I can watch them pick the filter on the site of that vendor all the way to the ship to me. Uh, we'll be using an RFID system to scan it to let them know that it's made it to our site. And then there's inspections along the way that happens now, but it's not tracked. And so right now, let's say they get it to the warehouse, I look at the filter, it's fine. But then by the time it gets to where the operator and they're getting ready to use the filter and they scan it, the joint is cracked. Well, now we have a trace where we can see whether or not the operator cracked it or whether or not it got cracked by whoever dropped it off to pass it on to the operator or was it cracked beforehand? If it was cracked beforehand, it would have never made it inside my facility, right? Because you have all these inspections and so when they scan it, it actually, is it integral? Is it blah, 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 blah. If you say no, that, that filter cannot be used and we can send it back to the vendor and then work it out for them to send us a replacement. But at least we have real time um, auditing of these different materials coming into the process. One, to not slow us up so we get a replacement as soon as possible. And two, just being transparent with the customer, let them know that everything that we're charging for is actually used by them. Biotech, as far as CDMO manufacturing, or just the biotech supply chain, as far as the vendors, is one of the industries that are still left out of the ballgame as far as real-time tracking of how things are being used in the system, where is it coming from, what type of shape or what type of quality is it in prior or during its use. And so we're trying to change that by being more transparent not with just the customer, but also with the vendors to hold everybody accountable. That's so, so important. And it's super ironic that, you know, if you order something off Amazon, you can, you know where it is at all times, but for something that could impact millions of people's lives, we, there's this murky like detail and, and lack of attention towards what's going on and, and all the more reason yeah. to assure the safety, the efficacy, and just make things more efficient. Um, right. And I'm hoping that, that you know, data connect, collected from the yeah. that we're using ourselves as the beta testers when that time comes. But I'm hoping that the data collected now we can use that data to be transparent with our peers in the federal government about the mm -hmm. actual cost of these drugs. And so we have a real discussion on how these drugs should be, how the patient should be charged from or how the medical payers and insurance should be charged with drugs that have a realistic view. And I think that's one of the barriers that's keeping trying to make these drugs more affordable is that on my side, my peers are not being real transparent about how much this stuff costs and how much lack of control that we have. I can't tell Sativa what to charge for their bags, right? I don't make a bag, they make a bag. So it's all these different parts of the supply chain that need to be looked at that we need to start looking at real data and sharing it with the appropriate uh, people that should be included in the decision-making process for such as things as the cost of drugs. And then the mm -hmm. other thing is to bring up is that, you know, you know the difference between the quality of a store, right? You know the difference between Walmart and Target. Uh, you know the difference between Geico and Progressive as far as the quality of service. Well, with a CDMO partner, our company really don't know until they had the experience. Yeah, people talk, right? They know who's better and who's not. Um, but when it comes down to dollar and cents and you're a startup, that goes out the door. You're just trying to get to the next level, getting your, your asset out there. So it's kind of like, okay, what makes sense financially and who's presenting the best picture to me when they introduce themselves to let me know they're going to adhere to federal regulations, right? Mm -hmm. So if we start also using this data uh, to come up with some type of grading system for CDMOs, the CDMOs can put their 
money where their mouth is as far as the adherence to regulations and the adherence to quality, then that will also help, um, I'll say, produce a leader in the pack as far as the CDMO market from the customer's perspective, um, who they choose to partner with to get these drugs manufactured. Totally agree. And I hope that um, a grading system does develop. I think just bringing more transparency to the process is so, so important. And you could argue if we make this um, more transparent, it's better for patients from, you know, a standard of uh, understanding the cost of care, also from the entrepreneur's perspective and actually getting their asset to the market and into patients. I'd like to hear about your take on what CDMOs relationship or role is in having discussions with insurance. What do you see as, you know, Lucas Pies Bio potential to negotiate prices with with insurers or is it sort of out of scope? It is out of scope for us. So we will only be able to negotiate prices, sorry, with our specific suppliers of raw materials and consumable goods. We're not the owners of the drug. So it was really the owner of the drug, the drug sponsor, they sometimes call them or somebody like the J&J, or even indigenous, as they develop their own products, they're the ones that have to do the final negotiation on what the charge with the medical payers. Now, what I can say by us being transparent in our costs, um, and ours, our purpose of really driving those costs down for our B2B customer, we feel like we'll be able to do our part in helping those uh, drug sponsors be able to drive down their costs as well, if they're saving costs with us. Uh, We're doing our part to help, but we can't directly negotiate, but we can influence policy uh, with the federal government to help them understand, hey, these are some of the costs that are required. And then those companies need to be a little bit more transparent as they can of saying, you know, this is the cost, additional cost on top of that based on what we've agreed to give back to in our investors. Mm -hmm. I think the happy medium would be uh, to kind of bring down the cost of drugs if we do more public-private partnerships. This COVID-19 vaccine and a rollout of it was a public-private partnership. So if we was to continue to do that for all of the drugs manufactured in the U.S., I think you'll see it get to market a lot faster. I think you'll see a lot of those prices um, roll back accordingly. And then it would look like our peers around the world. We are the only country that does open marketing on TV for our drugs. We're the only uh, country around the world that has no price control. But data numbers is always what determines the final decision. What does the data say? What does the cost actually look like on paper? And I think they'll give a better perspective of the federal government um, and, uh, you know, us as private entities um, to do more of these public uh, private uh, collaborations with drugs. I totally agree. And I think it's a matter of, you know, aligning incentives. Um, All these pharmaceutical companies are typically, you know, if they've found a a legendary cure or, you know, solution to a disease that has not yet had one, um, you know, they justify jacking up prices. And we've seen this time and time again with Myelin, with so many different pharmaceutical companies taking charge. But if there is this kind of happy medium that you're alluding to, um, as evidenced by the COVID vaccine, which has been, you know, tremendous in, in getting us back to our normal lives for the most part. Um, you know, it's, it's a case example of how maybe biotech will be changed forever. Could you sort of give us your take on negotiating partnerships when it comes to securing physical space for Lucas Bio? Yeah, it is not easy. Um, You know, real estate for our country has been the main 
primary sources of large revenue in a shorter period of time. And has also been one of the main sources of the wealth gap for us in the African-American community. So not just residential real estate, but this commercial real estate factor. And so it's still been a, a tough and long journey working with landlords and their respective investors to convince them that Lucas Pie Bio is that company we will deliver on what we say we can deliver and that our investors and, and us are up to the challenge on doing what we say we're going to do and going out to get the rest of these uh, customers. So uh, with a company like mine and we're trying to build an 80,000 square foot facility, you know, they look at me like I'm crazy. And so this still plays a role, unfortunately, my skin color in these negotiations and as far as moving the ball um, and making sure that uh, in the negotiation, negotiation timeline that each party is meeting the deadline for whatever we're supposed to deliver. One thing I will say is that the due diligence for minority startup companies, especially a company such as mine that requires a lot of capital and a lot of uh, uh, square footage as far as our commercial real estate take up. Unfortunately, that world is not as, as uh, diverse as some of these other industries are starting to become. But we're still going through negotiations with landlords, so we'll see how it rounds out. But I will say we've met every challenge of due diligence um, on time and with flying colors, even when having a, a number of our investors speak on our behalf. And so we're just ready to get over that finish line. So I really don't have an answer answer for that. I can be as transparent as I would like to be right now while we're still in negotiation. Um, but once we sign that dotted line, I will be um, going into more detail about how this process went and more specifically why it took us two years in <laughs> spite of the pandemic to get to where we are today. Any tips for, you know, aspiring entrepreneurs who are, you know, generally placed in the position to negotiate contracts or negotiate partnerships and make sure their company is not getting the short end of the stick? Yep, I would say cross your T's and dot your I's. So one of the things I did was put together a due diligence packet. Mm. Um, so this packet included our EIN number, our bank account information, um, our government SAM contracting number, our DUNS number, um, and included background um, as far as my personal ba uh, career background, uh, working in the biotech industry and me working in the industry for 21 years now, included resumes of my staff, um, as well as the resumes of the primary staff with my uh, strategic partners. I also included um, information went above and beyond to include information of people I used to work with as an employee to validate. Uh, my experience and education on top of what I'm doing now as an entrepreneur. So I think especially as minority founders of companies, you really want to have that information ready to go. You want to have your corporation and articles of corporation with the state and all that stuff ready to go to get past on whether or not it's a real business. The other part that we have to get around is that that income revenue piece. To me, that that's important. Um, and I know they look at it as super important with Black businesses, but when you see businesses like Uber that make a, a, a shit ton of money and they're still not profitable, to use the excuse that you're only investing in companies that are profitable or growth stage uh, companies is, is a, a jacked up excuse when the proof is in the pudding. But if you have your ducks in a row, you can see, and you can provide your tax information. That's another thing that I provide. But especially if you're pre-revenue, you just want to have all this documentation in place and make sure you keep your investors involved throughout the whole process so if they do have to vouch for you then there's no problem that they will. And you've done everything in your, in your power to legitimize the company 
for the for the uh, benefit of a strategic partner or the benefit of a landlord, whatever whichever one you're going after. Um, you legitimize it on paper. So now the proof is in the pudding where you have certain people speak on your behalf to validate who you are as a person, to validate who you are as far as the business that you're running. Thank you so much, Tia, for spending time with us this morning. It's been an amazing conversation. We've learned so much um, and really excited for what's to come with your organization and in the future. The last question is, what gets you out of bed in the morning? What's your motivation that leads you to, to be an amazing uh, employer, CEO of Lucas Paibaya? I think what gets me out of bed every morning is knowing that it's not just me. You know, so as an employee, it's just you. But as an employer, you got other people to think about. You got people's salaries in your hands. You got the B2B customer we're working with that you got their product in your hands. They got to meet their deadline. So for me, it's making sure that I get up and do what I'm supposed to do and keep striving for the things that we're trying to accomplish because more of that uh, is not just me anymore. It's not just employees, not just the customer. It's the patients at the end of the day that need this drug product that one may be on the market, but maybe they're bringing something better through me or may not be on the market and they bring it through me to get to the market. But that's, that's what gets me up every morning. Not to mention, you know, my family and certain families that depend on me and my success. Thank you all for listening. Visit us on Instagram at Thea Healthcare, on Twitter at ThiaHC, and on our website at ThiaHC.org for more content and to join our vibrant community of young professionals, entrepreneurs, investors, and thought leaders in healthcare. Special thanks to our amazing producer, Sarah Wetzler, and audio editors, Ellie Park, Asim Jane, Nikita Gupta, and Katie Donahue. If you're enjoying our content, please consider supporting Thea by visiting our website, theahc.org, to donate.